0: Hear now the word of the Lord from Ecclesiastes chapter 1, verses 1 through 11. The words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities. All is vanity. What does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? A generation goes and a generation comes, but the earth remains Forever. What has been is what will be, and what has been done is what will be done, and there is nothing new under the sun. Is there a thing of which it is said, see, this is new? It has been already in the ages before us. There is no remembrance of former things, nor will there be any remembrance of later things yet to be among those who come after. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God endures forever." This past December, when my family and I were decorating for Christmas, uh, it was my job to hang out the outdoor Christmas lights. And so I uh, got uh, the Christmas lights we use. We never do much fancy, but we have uh, some that we use uh, year after year. And so I got those out and strung them all up and plugged them in. And much to my chagrin, as often happens, uh, they weren't working. A big chunk of those lights uh, were not working and they were not lighting up in the way they should. Well, in that moment, on a spur of the moment decision, I I decided something very uncharacteristic for me. I decided that I was going to fix that set of lights. I, I don't fix many things very often. Uh, But I decided, you know what, I'm going to do this. And so I pulled up a YouTube video. I went to Menards. I bought a a circuit checker, a circuit sensor. I'm not sure what it's called anymore. Uh, I bought some replacement light bulbs to figure out where the burnt ones were, to replace those, to let the the broken circuit be repaired so that they would work. And I got to tell you, it it felt really good. I understand why people like to fix things, because I felt like I was doing something. I was accomplishing something. I was getting somewhere. And so meticulously, I went over circuits circuit by circuit, wire by wire to find the ones that needed to replace, and then eventually I threw it all away because I made no progress whatsoever in this work. I spent hours on this, and it was all for nothing, vanity of vanities. Now, life often feels that way, whether we're doing a small project or whether we're after a bigger ambition, where we feel like we pour in tons of time and energy and effort And if we make any progress whatsoever, which is never guaranteed, that progress always seems too little. Was I really investing this much of who I am in getting that small of a return? Well, we're starting a sermon series this morning on the book of Ecclesiastes, a book that wrestles with that issue. How do we live? How do we go on in a world that is so broken? in a world where we're trying to cultivate good things and instead upspring thorns and thistles. I want to warn you, and maybe you got a sense of this as we read this introductory passage, though, that this is a book of wisdom, a book that doesn't give us tidy, neat answers that we can just sort of have and receive uh, wrapped up in a little bow, and it's just a wonderful thing that gives us 10 principles for living a victorious life today What we are instead seeing is the preacher here, largely engaged in the work of clearing away error, error in ways that we look at this world, clearing away all of this error in the way that we live our lives, whether consciously or unconsciously, to try to give us a view of what the truth is. He's not going to give us this tidy, neat answer. He's going to clear away the error so that we can clearly see what the rest of the Bible tells us about what the truth is. And so in this passage, our big idea, and and this is a theme that will be unfolded through the rest of this book as we study it, but our big idea this morning is this. There is no salvation under the sun. There is no salvation under the sun. And so this morning, our three parts to consider this uh, passage is, number one, the preacher's motto, the preacher's motto, and then number two, perpetual motion, perpetual motion, And then number three, no progress, no memory. No progress, no memory. So the first section, the preacher's motto, uh, look at verses one and two. In the very first verse, we have the author identified for us. We read the words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. Now this word for preacher is going to come up a lot as we study the book of Ecclesiastes, so we should say a word about it as we get started. Uh, This word is very difficult to translate, uh, but it comes from a word that means to assemble or to gather. Um, This is a word that's related to the Old Testament word that when it's translated into Greek becomes the word that in the New Testament is commonly translated as church. So this is the one who gathers or assembles together the church. And so when we read about the words... Of the one who's gathering together the church. Uh, this idea of, of translating this as a preacher is a very good translation. It doesn't maybe capture all of the nuances of what's included here, and some people translate it differently. Your my Bible may have a different translation, but preacher is a very good uh, idea to translate what's going on here. Well, who is this preacher? Well, we saw verse 1, this is the son of David, king in Jerusalem. Now, When we read that this is a son of David, this could be any of the sons of David. Remember, David was one of the great kings of Israel, uh, the great king of Israel. Uh, And so this could be any of his sons, any of the sons who ruled over Jerusalem, uh, over the nation of Israel, but then over the smaller uh, nation of Judah. But normally when we read someone described as the son of David, we're talking about Solomon. Solomon. Now, if you have a study Bible or if you're maybe familiar with Ecclesiastes, you may know there's actually a pretty big debate about whether Solomon, in fact, was the one who wrote this. Many of the arguments are very technical. They deal with the vocabulary and the style of the Hebrew, thinking that this uh, was uh, a style of Hebrew and a vocabulary of Hebrew that wasn't spoken and written until after Solomon actually lived. Uh, But I don't think that those arguments are all very uh, well-founded. I think uh, many of them have been answered. I answer some of those, um, uh, I give you some information about those objections in the sermon notes if you want to read more about it. Uh, But I will say this. I, I do think this is Solomon, but I will say this. It is interesting that he never identifies himself. He never names himself explicitly as Solomon. And this is different from Proverbs where we read, these are the Proverbs of Solomon or the Song of Solomon. This is the Song of Songs, which is Solomon's. Solomon is very explicitly identified as the author of Proverbs and Song of Songs in a way that Ecclesiastes never quite comes out and directly says it's Solomon. But on the whole, I think it's very clear that this is Solomon speaking, and so that's the way I will be approaching this as we read this great book together. Well, Solomon, the preacher in verse 2 then, gives us his motto. And this is really the theme of the book. This is what Solomon wants to communicate to us in verse 2. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. So what is vanity? Well, we're not talking about sort of a mirror that you might have over your uh, bathroom sink or something like that. When we're talking about a vanity, this word means a mist or a breath or a vapor something that is here today and gone almost immediately afterward. In Ecclesiastes, we might triangulate this meaning uh, for understanding what's happening in the, in the book of Ecclesiastes uh, by looking at sort of three parts to this. In the book of Ecclesiastes, sometimes this word vanity refers to something that is empty or futile, that no matter how hard you work at it, it will never bring you the happiness or the satisfaction that you were looking for. Other times, this word refers to something that is insubstantial. No matter how much you work at it, you don't gain much from it, or the gain you have is very short-lived. Other times, this refers to something that is grievous and evil, something that is a tragedy of living in a broken, sinful world. Things just happen. Even this week, we had a terrible storm out of the blue. That would be a grievous vanity that Ecclesiastes would talk about. There's no real rhyme or reason, it seems. It just happens and it brings misery, as many people were or perhaps still are without power, in addition to all the other horrors that uh, fill this broken world. But we might also look outside Ecclesiastes to understand what this word vanity means. Outside of the book of Ecclesiastes, this word for vanity appears 32 times. Nearly half of those times, this is really interesting, 13 of the 32 times, this is a word that refers to idols, false gods that people worship. Um, not, that's not the only word for idol in the Old Testament, but this is one of the main words that that's used to refer to idols. They're vanity, they're insubstantial, they can't accomplish anything for you, they're not alive. But also, in other parts of the Old Testament, we have something like the vanity that we see reflected in Ecclesiastes. For example, in Psalm 144, verse 4, we read, man is like a breath. He is a, a vanity. He's a vapor. He's a mist. A mist. His days are like a passing shadow. And that, as we will see, is very much what the author of Ecclesiastes wants to get across to us. But there's one other place we should look to sort of triangulate the meaning of what this word vanity means, and it's in the New Testament. You may be uh, aware that the Old Testament was written in Hebrew, where the New Testament is written in Greek. So they're not quite the same language, but there was a Greek translation of the Old Testament uh, that was very commonly in use in the days when the New Testament was written. And so if we look at the word that the Greek New Testament has translating this word for vanity, it's interesting to see where that word pops up in the New Testament. And there's a particular place in Romans chapter 8, verse 20, where the meaning very much captures What the author of Ecclesiastes wants us to see when he talks about vanity. It's Romans 8 verse 20 where Paul writes, For the creation was subjected to futility, to frustration. There's that word, to vanity. For the creation was subjected to vanity, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. This is a word that describes the world in which we live, a world that is broken, a world that is fallen, a world where you cannot make real progress. And this is a book that is wrestling with how do we live if that's the reality of the world that surrounds us. We can't cling to this world. This world is a vapor. It's all vanity. We can't find satisfaction in it. This world is empty, it is futile, it is frustrating. And ultimately, and here's what the author of Ecclesiastes wants us to hear, the preacher wants us to know that we cannot find true wisdom in this world under the sun. It's broken, it's sinful. Whatever wisdom we may find, it will not come from this world. But it's important to understand as we study this book that what the the preacher tells us, is not entirely bad news. This sounds thoroughly depressing. This sounds very dark. But really, this isn't entirely bad news. And we're going to see the the hope that comes out of this book. Martin Luther actually considered this to be a thoroughly optimistic book, one of the most optimistic in all the Bible, because it clears away the false paths that we might take, clears away the error in order that we may find the truth of the hope of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, let me explain where I think, or what this book is, is trying to do in clearing away error. Uh, the story I mentioned a little bit earlier about hanging up Christmas lights probably illustrates a persistent character, um, we might say aspect of who I am, but probably it's a character flaw. Uh, namely, that I am a hopeless pack rat. Um, I love to keep things. I rationalize it to myself, saying, Boy, someday I will find a use for this. It's broken, doesn't matter. If I need it, I'll be able to fix it. I don't want to get rid of it. I want to hold on to these things. And my wife, on the other hand, is not a hopeless pack rat. She's the opposite. She's a ruthless purger. So in our marriage, we have something of the immovable object don't get rid of it, don't get rid of it, uh, versus the unstoppable force throw it away, throw it away. Now, I rationalize again that someday I'm going to need this, I'm going to want this, but let's be honest, my wife is much more realistic about this. She knows that in all likelihood, I will never find a use for the junk that I am trying to cling to in our home. It's just going to be clutter, it's just going to take up space. And even if I do, potentially, one day, someday, over the rainbow somewhere, find a use for this, she also knows that, just like in the case of the broken light bulbs, I probably won't be able to fix whatever's broken to the point where I'll just have to throw it away and start over. If I would just do that and get to buying something new when I need it, I'd be in much better shape. And one thing I've learned in 12-plus marriage with this immovable force of the ruthless purger with whom I live is that there is something freeing, something wonderful About Letting go of things. That's hard for me as a hopeless pack rat, but there's something freeing about letting go of things that are broken. It removes clutter from your life. It lets you move on to something better, and that's what the author of Ecclesiastes is trying to tell us. This preacher isn't so much worried about minimalism and what we consume in the stuff of this world. He wants to get at what we're thinking and he says, you've got to clear away this error. You've got to get rid of it. Don't cling to this world. It cannot ultimately offer you what you are finding, what you are hoping to find. And so the preacher is helping us to clear away error so that we can find something better. And that's where this bold thesis begins. He wants us to know from the beginning that vanity of vanities, vanity of vanities, all is vanity. That's bold. That's bold. As pack rat people like we are spiritually, we want to cling to the stuff of this world, the promises of this world. We don't want to believe this at first. I'm pretty sure I can find some use for this or that that I find in this world. And knowing that this would be a controversial motto, the preacher immediately begins to give arguments to back this up. And in this first argument, he wants us to observe and consider the world around us, creation, to see the way in which the world is always moving, but never arriving. The world is always moving, but never arriving. This brings us to our second point about the perpetual motion of life and the perpetual motion of creation in verses 3 through 7. The preacher moves on in verse 3 to ask, what does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? What does man gain? That's a a business word. It refers to financial gain from business dealings. What do you gain from all of the toil with which you toil? We labor all of our lives in so many different areas and circumstances. What do we really profit from it? And of course, our Lord Jesus echoed that same question in Mark chapter 8 verse 36 when he says, what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and to forfeit his soul? He says, imagine you're not just trying to fix a $4 set of Christmas lights. Imagine you can gain the whole world. It still won't profit you much in comparison to forfeiting your soul. Well, to underscore the foolishness of trying to find substantial gain in this life, in this world, the preacher then asks us to consider creation itself. And so in verses 4 through 7, we have a contrast against creation and an illustration from creation. The contrast comes in verse 4. In contrast to us who come and go, the earth endures forever. Creation endures forever. Verse 4, a generation goes and a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. James 4 verse 14 echoes this point. What is your life? For you are a mist, you're a vapor, you're a vanity that appears for a little time and then vanishes. In contrast to the enduring sense of creation, your life continues for just a brief time, and then is gone forever. So we are, our lives, our generations are in contrast to creation. But then the preacher moves on to illustrate the vanity of the toil with which we toil by pointing to the way in which creation is always moving but never arrives. Look at verse 5. The first place the preacher points us toward is the sun. He says the sun rises and the sun goes down and hastens to the place where it rises. So the the sun is always in this great orbit, and I, I understand that it's actually us who are moving and not the sun, but we still call it the sunrise and the sunset too, so the point remains. Uh, the 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 preacher is saying think about the sun how it's always moving across the sky and as soon as it's done it's done what is it done what has it accomplished has it fulfilled its course no it hastens back to the point where it started to start the whole process again every single day the word there for hasten is pants Have you ever run late for something, maybe to catch a plane or a train or try to catch up to a meeting and you're running, 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 and you finally burst in, finally barely on time and you're panting? Well, that's the sun, so much hasting, always moving, but never actually accomplishing anything lasting. The whole thing starts again the next day. But it's not only the sun in verse 6, it's the winds. Verse 6, the wind blows to the south and goes again to the north, around and around goes the wind. And on its circuits, the wind returns. You have the wind that's just flowing here and there, moving, never stopping, always going, always going somewhere. What does the wind accomplish? For all it's blowing here and there and everywhere, it never stops. It's always working, always moving. In verse 7, the streams flow ceaselessly into the sea. All streams run to the sea, but the sea is not full to the place where the streams flow there they flow again think about all the work that rivers do always pouring always pouring always carrying always moving this water into the ocean and the ocean is never full the ocean is never done it's always happening again and again everything is always moving and it is never arriving now this is bad news In the endless activity of your life, what this tells you, and we have to face this, is that you will never make any real progress. Whatever you think you are accomplishing in your life, the preacher tells us we will never make any real progress. We'll be always moving, but we will never actually arrive. But it's bad news also because when the ceaseless cycles of creation will repeat forever, they at least get to keep moving. Your life is short. You are here, and then you are gone. But there's also good news in this. Again, the preacher's trying to clear away the error to help us to see the truth of this. And in part, as we think about creation, we have to be reminded that this is a part of God's good order for this world. It is good news that the sun rises every morning. It is good news that the seasons continue. If the sun didn't rise, how would we live If the seasons didn't continue, how would farmers grow food? How would we go through the normal course of our life? In fact, God promised after destroying the entire world with a flood in Genesis 8, verse 22, that while the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night shall not cease. The fact that these cycles continue ceaselessly is God's good provision for our lives, there's no progress, but there is stability, and this idea of stability is an important part of what the preacher wants to point us toward in this life. Now, again, the preacher is clearing away error. It is easy to think that we are making progress in our cooking and cleaning, and yet the work still remains. It's easy to think that we're making progress when we make a dent in the laundry in our houses, and yet somehow the clothes get dirty again again. It's easy to think that we're making progress when we get to inbox zero or when we clear away all our work assignments and yet things keep piling up or landscaping. No matter how many times I mow my lawn, it keeps growing back, ceaseless, always moving, never arriving. But we have to ask, this is kind of harsh, is it really true that there's no progress to be made? I mean, that seems dark, that seems hopeless. Is that really, really true? especially when we live in the year 2021, where we've seen all manner of technological and scientific advances in so many areas. Well, the preacher through this book is going to acknowledge that there is real possibility for growth, for development, and for improvement. But in spite of all that, he still sticks to his point that real progress, true progress, to bring about something that is genuinely new is not actually possible, and we have to hear him for what he says. And this brings us to the third point, that there's no progress and no memory. No matter how much more wisdom or pleasure or work or wealth we gain in this life, we will find no ultimate satisfaction. All of it will be vanity. All of it will be emptiness. In verse 8, the preacher says this, all things are full of weariness. A man cannot utter it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, The ear, nor the ear filled with hearing. This perpetual motion that we're engaged in in our lives, it's a weariness. Our eyes will never be satisfied. We won't see one last final thing and that will be enough. We won't hear one last final thing and our souls will be filled. All of it is simply a weariness. It keeps going and going and we are never truly satisfied. And then in verses 9 through 10, the preacher says that in spite of our accomplishments, there truly will be nothing new under the sun. Verse 9, what has been is what will be. And what has been done is what will be done, and there is nothing new under the sun. Is there a thing of which it is said, see, this is new? It's already been in the ages before us. You see, with all of our science and our technology, we can perhaps accomplish more. We can perhaps do it better. We can perhaps bring it about faster. But in everything that we've accomplished, there is nothing truly new. We're still trying to live our lives just as those who came before us did. We're still trying to find satisfaction in our work just like those who came before us did and they didn't succeed and we aren't succeeding and finding lasting satisfaction. We're still trying to raise our families. We're still trying to pass the baton on to the next generation. But even there as we think about the future, verse 11 reminds us that the next generation will not even remember us. All your efforts in verse 11 there is no remembrance of former things, nor will there be any remembrance of later things yet to be among those who come after. We don't remember the past, and those who live in the future won't remember us. How many of you know the names of your great great grandparents? And if you do, do you know the names of your great, great, great grandparents, people who are literally responsible for making sure that you are here? Do you even know their names, much less anything significant about their lives? We don't remember the people who came before us. Only the greatest of all achievements are preserved in our memory, and even those are only the smallest slice of the lives of the people who work to accomplish them. One of my favorite poems is by Percy Bysshe Shelley. And it's a poem called Ozymandias. You may have heard this one. It's a poem about a man who brings back word from a distant land about seeing the remains of an ancient empire that was glorious in its day. The poem goes like this. It's very short. I met a traveler from an antique land who said, Two vast and trunkless legs of stone stand in the desert. So there's a statue. Near them on the sand, half-sunk, A shattered visage lies, a visage is a face, a face lies in the sand, whose frown and wrinkled lip and sneer of cold command tell that its sculptor well those passions read, which yet survive stamped on these lifeless things, the statue, the hand that mocked them and the heart that fed. And on the pedestal, these words appear My name is Ozymandias, King of Kings. Look on my works, ye mighty and despair. And then the next line of the poem says this, nothing beside remains. Round the decay of that colossal wreck, boundless and bare, the lone and level sands stretch far away. No matter how great your achievements are, even for those for whose achievements are so glorious that people can look on them and despair, ultimately time will bring them to nothing. Ultimately time will bury them in the sand. And they will be forgotten forever. This is not positive and encouraging, as we might hope it would be. This is heavy. But we have to ask ourselves, in this word of inspired Scripture, what error is the preacher clearing away for us? And beyond this, what truth is he trying to lead us toward? Well, two applications. The first have to do with the error. The error to expose. Brothers and sisters, we must consider well the vanity of this life. That's the first application. Consider well the vanity of this life. And this is so painful. And maybe it's not what you came to hear this morning. Because we want our lives to have meaning. We want all the things that we are doing to count for something real in this world. And because of this, we so often deceive ourselves into believing that our lives are at the center of the universe. Now, we might not say it this way. But the way we live and the way we think and the way we act expose that we believe it. We become self-absorbed. We become self-consumed. We become self-obsessed. We look after our own interests alone and not after the interests of others. We believe that we're making real progress, that we're on the brink of finding true satisfaction. And on this, Ecclesiastes pours the coldest of buckets of water. The preacher forces us to consider the incredibly short duration of our lives and to reckon with, to to do justice in our thinking with our inability to make any real progress and the fact that all of our toil will be forgotten anyway. It may may feel satisfying now to inflate our self-importance, but what will that ultimately gain us? The preacher is, in fact, whether it feels like it or not, He is doing us a great kindness by stripping away our vanity, by clearing away our errors. Because, brothers and sisters, if we have hope in this life only, and if we live like we have hope in this life only, if we think that we can find satisfaction and meaning in this life only, then we are of all people most to be pitied. Where then are you tempted to feel self-important as though everything revolved around you? where are you tempted to worry as though everything depended on you and where are you tempted to obsess to obsess as though your toil will gain you lasting satisfaction if only i could accomplish what i'm after brothers and sisters consider well the vanity of this life but we have to not only clear away the error as the book of ecclesiastes will do we have to have that error cleared away so that we can more clearly see the truth that we must consider. And that's this, our second application, look for salvation above the sun. There is no salvation under the sun. We must look for salvation above the sun. Again, stripping away the errors of thinking that this world has something to offer us so that we can find what is truly substantial, what is not short-lived, but what is lasting, what is not grievous and evil, but what is good and from God. If you're following the news right now, you may know that there are three billionaires who are trying to do something new. Now it's not new, it's just one more extension of what human beings have always been doing, but three billionaires are trying to be the very first to get into outer space. Now, some of this is because they want to start a a brand new um, industry, we might say, of space tourism for the low, low price of $200,000. Even you can take a round trip to outer space. But more than this, they want the fame of being the first private people, not, not professional astronauts, but the first private people who pay for the experience of getting into outer space. And if you've also read, they're explaining that part of this has a very deep humanitarian need because this world is being destroyed and, uh, and there's pollution and there's sickness and we need to find a plan B if we've screwed up earth so badly. But through this, in the Los Angeles Times, there was an article, an editorial this week by Michael Hiltzik that recognized this project for what it was, a mere vanity project Well, that's so much echoes what the book of Ecclesiastes would tell us. Now, to be clear, I would take a trip to outer space and back if I could. I'm not going to spend $200,000 on it. I'm not opposed to going to outer space. This is a remarkable thing. But the idea of being the first to do it, and the thinking that by doing this we will find a plan A for the brokenness and the futility of this world is entirely misguided. We do need a plan B. We do need to ascend above the sun to gain it but we won't accomplish this by interplanetary space travel any more than in Genesis 11, the builders of the Tower of Babel were able to build a tall enough tower to reach up into the heavens where God is seated on his throne. The goal then was the same as the goal now. We are trying to escape our problems. We are trying to escape the futility and the vanity of this world. And no more can we build a tower to escape it than we can fly high enough into outer space to escape it. We cannot get high enough. We cannot lift ourselves high enough to get above the sun to escape the problems of this world. We need someone to come down from heaven for us. And this is what Jesus Christ has done for us. He says, don't look at what this world offers to you. You cannot ascend into heaven on your own strength. He says in John 3 verse 13 that no one has ascended into heaven. All of the efforts in all of human history, including what came after Jesus, all of these efforts to ascend into heaven have been failed attempts. No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. Jesus descended. He came down from heaven. All of creation, the vast reaches of the created universe included, cannot provide ultimately what we are wanting our eternal life, our lasting satisfaction. There is no salvation under the sun. And no matter who travels into outer space and no matter how far they are able to travel, they too will ultimately die. There is nothing new under the sun by getting into outer space or anywhere else. What we need is Jesus Christ who came down from heaven, came down from above the sun in order to raise us up to the heavenly places where we can be with him. He did this by coming to die in our place so that our sins might be forgiven, so that He might raise us up spiritually today, even in the midst of this broken, dying world. We are raised now to newness of life spiritually, but at the end of time, to raise even our bodies from the dead, to live in a resurrected new heavens and new earth with Him forever, a world that will not be marked by futility, a world that will not be marked and plagued by thorns and thistles in a world that when we, in which we will enjoy lasting satisfaction in the presence of God the Father, God the Son, and the Holy Spirit. You cannot find what you're looking for in this world. The preacher clears that away, and we're going to see this so clearly as we work our way through this book. You can't find what you're looking for in this world, in this life, under the sun. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity here. But the gospel of Jesus promises that for all those who trust in Jesus, you will never be put to shame. Your life will not be vanity. You will be raised with the sons of God on the last day and the days of resurrection. Beloved, do not put your hope in the vanity of this world. Put your hope instead in the solid hope of the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we pray that as we study your word, you would... Help us to repent of areas where we are tempted to put too much faith, too much stock, too much hope in this world. But we pray now that instead you would lift our eyes to the heavenly places where Christ is seated at your right hand, that with the eyes of faith we would see him there seated by your throat, and that there we would believe in him and trust in him and live lives even as our outer man is wasting away, that we would be renewed in him day by day as we await the day when the vanity of this world will pass away forever and we'll be resurrected to solid, lasting joys through Christ Jesus, our Lord. It's in his name we pray, amen.